Hello, welcome to Healing Out Loud with me, your host, Jackie Shea. This is a place to relate to the darkest days and be inspired by ultimate triumph. Each week, I interview a brave guest who has extensive experience with illness and or wellness, and hopefully we will leave you inspired to warrior on, highly informed about something new, and connected to a tribe of amazing humans. Because the only way out is through, but it helps to have a tribe walking with you. Hi friends, happy new week. I hope that you made the most of last week and did some feng shui fun in your home and I hope you're super excited about this week's episode. This week's fun fact is that I finally booked a trip to Maui guys. I used to live there and I haven't been back in six years and I just booked my trip this week. I leave in a few weeks. I'm so pumped. I'm also pumped about this episode with Amy B. Cher, author of This Is How I Save My Life and expert in mind, body, spirit, healing. Guys, after seven years of suffering from crazy symptoms and getting multiple diagnoses, Amy finally got diagnosed with Lyme disease. Healing from Lyme took her all the way to India for intensive stem cell treatment. And in India, what she really got while she was there was a much deeper understanding of how she could actually heal herself, which is something she was incredibly resistant to. You guys, this is not an episode on manifestation, I promise you. Because um, I wouldn't want to listen to that episode. So in this episode, we discuss what Amy discovered about healing and why she thinks she's free of, she knows she's free of Lyme, but why, why she thinks she is free of Lyme and has been for eight years. Subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on iTunes. Follow me at Shay Jackie for weekly challenge updates. This week, it's all about letting go, my friends. Join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Say- Shay Facebook group and check out JackieShay.com for more info or to work with me. All right, let's hit this week's episode. Hi guys, I have with me Amy B. Cher, author and expert in mind, body, spirit, healing. Hi, Amy. Hi, how are you? I'm good. I'm so, so happy that you're here and I'm so happy that my guests get to hear about your, my listeners get to hear about your story and your brilliant advice and hopefully buy your book. Thank Um, you so much. Yeah, so we're discussing your most recent book, This Is How I Saved My Life, which I just loved, loved. Um, This book is on the surface about your turbulent journey healing from Lyme disease, which took you all the way to India in hopes for a cure, but it's so much deeper than Lyme or illness. It doesn't have to have anything to do with Lyme, really. That's just the vessel by which you had your spiritual experience. Um, For me, it was a really fun, painful, and interesting read because it was like it was like reading my own story there are crazy similarities um between our stories my boyfriend looked at the book and said well this sounds familiar oh wow (laughs) um but it was so much more familiar than I actually could have imagined uh I am but all on at the same time I'm well aware that people who are not nor have ever been sick could actually get so much from this read. Um, But we'll get to the spiritual stuff later. My listeners need to know they're not alone and you've certainly been through hell. So tell us a little bit about what the beginning was like for you. You didn't get diagnosed until 2007 and that was seven years into being sick. So what were those seven years like? Yeah, so they they were a rough seven years. I think that, you know, I started with with sort of subtle symptoms that just got worse and worse. I had migraines and nausea and fatigue and then pain in my feet and 
my legs and then some tingling and weakness and things just sort of, you know, were were symptoms that could have been something huge or nothing. Like they could have been a vitamin deficiency or hormones or, you know, it's it's really hard with Lyme disease because there aren't a set of sort of standard symptoms. In fact, I didn't get you know, the bullseye rash that's commonly associated with Lyme, I didn't get a lot of the typical Lyme, Lyme sort of symptoms or, or sort of earmarks. So I basically went misdiagnosed. I was diagnosed with lots and lots of illnesses, but none of them um, were the actual sort of root cause, which was the Lyme disease. And I think that, you know, looking back, I can see that even before the Lyme disease and those more um, intense symptoms, you know, I was a sort of anxious kid. I worried about everybody else's feelings. I was a perfectionist. And so when I look at the whole picture now, I see that sort of that journey, that journey started much, much earlier, even though I didn't maybe have the really stark physical symptoms to show for it. Right. And how did it feel for you in those in those seven years, like not not getting the proper diagnosis? A lot of people really, really struggle in that time period where they know something is being missed. Right. And for me, I mean, I kept getting diagnosed like I was diagnosed with several different autoimmune diseases and I was diagnosed with neuropathy, which is nerve damage. So I I never had anybody really say early on nothing's wrong with you I mean I was diagnosed and so for me I was kind of like okay well now I have this disease and now they found this disease and maybe it wasn't that one but it's this one so it was really really frustrating but it was more frustrating that I wasn't getting better because I was being diagnosed with and treated for several different specific diseases right and your life at the same time got smaller and smaller right yeah, I was bed bound at one point. Um, I was just so um, in so much physical pain. That was sort of my biggest symptom was just severe body aches, but to the point where just, I mean, just moving or not moving was painful. Moving was painful. Everything was painful. And so, um, yeah, I just was really confined to a room a lot of times my bedroom and then oftentimes just my bed. I couldn't even get out, get out from there. Yeah, you were on 18 painkillers. <laughs> I was on a yeah, I was on a lot of painkillers and I was on narcotic painkillers. Like we're not talking like Advil. I mean, I was on like lots of narcotic painkillers that just barely maybe took the edge off the pain, but never I just I just never found relief. Right. And eight I mean, in your book I think you mentioned eighteen and I was like, Oh my god, I have to yeah, write that down. Yeah. And you know, you a lot of the pain you experienced, you mentioned neuropathy, a lot of the pain you experienced um was in your legs. And you you talk about how you wanted to cut off your legs. And I actually really, really related to that. I used to punch my legs everywhere. I just punch them and punch them and punch them because that was the thing that like relieved any, some of the pain. Mm -hmm. Um, but you have this scene in your book where you, where you're with your partner at the time and, um, you're begging him to cut off your legs and that that was, that was kind of a, a wake up moment for you. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I was just in so much pain and, and and at one point the 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 most pain was concentrated in my feet and legs. And so I found myself 
just thinking if I could get, I mean, my legs really became my enemies. I'm thinking if I could just get rid of these legs, I could survive or I could deal with, with everything else. And so I begged my then boyfriend to cut off my legs. Thankfully he did not do it, but it was a real, um, it was, it was, it was a very interesting sort of place for me, um, to be in that. I think the vulnerability of it is what stands out because I, I have always been one of these people who has everything together and, um, everybody comes to me for help. I'm not usually the person who even to this day, like I'm not usually the person who needs help. And so for that to be that vulnerable and saying something so that made so much sense to me, but also I knew I was kind of being crazy. Like at the same time, the pain was driving me to like, and like this place that, that just, I didn't even care what I was saying or if it made sense. I was so desperate. And I think it was a lesson in vulnerability for me, but also just to, to acknowledge how much pain I was in instead of trying to just push through all the time. Mm, I love the word vulnerability. I mean, my uh, being sick taught me about vulnerability, right? Like I had never, I had not, I realized once I got sick and needed all of this help and started talking about my humanness out loud, I realized that I hadn't really been vulnerable at all in my life prior. Right, right. And I think illness does push us to that place of, okay, you're going to do it because you have no choice left. And also, I mean, and you're probably going to get to this because it comes later in the book, but holding all of your emotions in and trying to always be the strong one and never letting anything out. I mean, this is what can happen to a body. Like how I just look back now and I'm like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that my body held all of that for so many years. No wonder I was in pain. No wonder I was falling apart. Absolutely. Yes. And I love that that is such a central theme of healing for you, really experiencing your emotions, letting them up and out, loving them as as they are. Um, and for me, it's the same. And I still feel it today. You know, now that I'm pretty in touch with my body, I feel when I'm holding something in, you know, my body gets exhausted. Um, right. And it's and it's and it's pretty shocking the amount of uh, the way that manifests. But yeah, so you, yeah, you tried so many things. I mean, I tried so many things, but you tried so many things. Um, I was I was just shocked by some of the things you tried to get well. The carrot juice cure. Yeah, and it's so funny. I had so many things that. I had tried and I had written them out in a different way. And my editor at Simon and Schuster came back to me and said, I think you should make a list. This is like so many things. And I think it will be more impactful and save a lot of space if you just sort of make a list. And so that's what I ended up doing was just listing all the ridiculousness of, and not that the things were ridiculous, but just the amount of things I tried where the quantity of it was so ridiculous. Right. And did you did you find any relief, uh, any significant relief in any of the things you really tried before India? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to say, like people ask me now and I'm like, the thing is, we never really know. I think that everything you try and everything that works and everything that doesn't work or everything that seems like it works or doesn't work is all part of the eventual cure. Like, so I say, you know, the carrot juice diet didn't or the carrot juice cure didn't work. But do I really know it had no impact on me? No, I don't. And I think probably, you know, some things failing led me in a 
caused me to, you know, go in another direction that maybe got me to the right place. So I'm so glad that I did all those things. But do I think any of them had a significant positive impact on my health? Probably not. And um, but I think there's something in the spirit of being willing to try different things for sure, because you just never know one of those could have worked or I could, you know, I met different people at different treatments along the way that are still in my life today. And I mean, there's so many reasons to be open, not obsessive and feeling like you have to try everything or you won't heal, but just in being open to the experience of trying whatever comes your way that you resonate with. That is such an important difference. That that is such an important difference that you noted that not being obsessive and trying needing feeling like you need to do everything but being right, open exactly. because that is that is what ends up happening to a lot of people especially with Lyme all of these opinions get thrown at them and they're just like I guess I got to do it all and do it all at once because I want to get well immediately exactly which usually makes you crash it does right um jumping back quick I wanted to w- the scene where you uh, ask your boyfriend at the time to cut your legs off he's he's crying right he's he's very very upset by this experience and I just wanted to talk touch on you know the experience that your parents were having that the people around you that loved you were having as you tried all of these things and they consistently didn't really make you feel better for years Mm -hmm. and years and I know you were very close to your parents your parents are angelic quite frankly in the book oh, I'm like I just you. love I love them um thank you they have their human humanisms but I love them and uh so so what how I I talk to a lot of clients and I have a lot of people who worry a lot about what they're putting on the people around them um and, right and, and I, it, yeah t- can you speak oh, to that I was gonna say I completely understand that and I think I mean, I think at the end of the day, to be honest, we have to trust the people that are in our lives to handle their own emotions in their own ways. Like, I feel like I took to like expended, expend so much energy worrying about what a burden I was putting on them that it only sent me into a further decline. So it wasn't like I was getting better faster to release the burden by being so worried about it. I think I only made myself more sick. And I actually think, you know, many of my clients have a similar type, like sort of type A worried personality. Everything has to be perfect that that I did and that I still sometimes do. Um, and, and I feel like in that way, we over worry about everybody else and not as much about ourselves and that we don't trust that other people can take care of themselves. And we don't allow we don't allow true healthy relationships when we're constantly trying to save somebody else from pain. Even if we believe it was inflicted by us, like we have to trust that the people in our lives have to deal with their own stuff, just like we have to deal with our own stuff. And sometimes the stuff consists of people around us not doing well. Um, And so I try to practice that more and more now that I'm well, because I just see that freaking out about how everybody else is feeling. Just it, it just doesn't work. If it worked and it helped release the burden on friends and family and loved ones, then maybe it would be worth considering, but it absolutely doesn't work. Nobody ever feels better when you stress out about ruining anybody else's life. And so the practice has to become that I can handle my emotions about this and I trust that they can handle theirs too. Right, right. 
Let's take a quick break for my show sponsor, SaneBox. I posted on Instagram about them this week, guys. I'm pretty passionate about what they're doing for me and my email. They manage my email, organizing everything that comes in to separate folders. For me, this is perfect because I get a lot of newsletters and blogs and news emails, mostly from health stuff, but also the times and different things I want to be up to date on. And there are things I really want to read, but I never have time when I first check my email. At that point, I'm usually in it for work emails. So these things end up getting lost. With SaneBox, they immediately take all of my news emails and put them into a separate folder so that when I'm ready, I can open that and read what I want. You can do this with anything, with shopping, with social media. You can separate, you can have any folders you want to have. Honestly, guys, without SaneBox, emails end up getting lost. Sometimes I don't respond to people and I end up missing opportunities. It just, it gets way too chaotic for me. I love how this program relieves my stress and supports my well-being. Because we could all uh, use some stress relief and more well-being in our busy lives, I worked out a great deal for my listeners. Visit sanebox.com forward slash Jackie Shea today and they'll throw in an extra $25 credit on top of the two-week free trial. The best news is that you don't have to enter your credit card information unless you decide to buy, so there's really nothing to lose. Check it out today and let me know if you love the organization and lessen stress as much as I I do. Again, that's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash Jackie Shea. And the link is in my show notes. All right, let's get back to this episode. So in 2007, um, you were diagnosed with Lyme. Um, and one of the reasons you were diagnosed is because the doctor who diagnosed you, his son, died from Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important, I think, to discuss death. I remember when the t-shirts of I know somebody with Lyme disease were kind of going around and my best friend who was watching me, I mean, I know, yeah, I know somebody with Lyme disease. My best friend who was watching me said those shirts should say, I know somebody who died of Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, you know, I have a nurse who does my IVIG and he, he had a patient who died of Lyme. And I just think it's so, the awareness out there is so limited around how serious this disease is. So I was, you know, did you, did it freak you out when the doctor told you that? Were you surprised to hear that? Yeah. You know, I think at the time, like, thankfully, I didn't understand the seriousness of Lyme disease because you don't actually understand it until you get into the world of, like, figuring out how to treat it and realizing, like, the same thing doesn't work for everybody and there's not a magic bullet. And so when he said that, I think I was like, oh, gosh, he must have had it so bad or, you know, that's an anomaly. Like, and I do still think, to be honest, it's like the more people don't die from Lyme disease that do like, you know what I mean? So I think like, I thought, you know, Oh, it's such an anomaly. And like, there are people that, that do unfortunately die from it, but more people stay alive and more people are able to get treatment. And so I think it's important to, to look at that. And at that point, that was just what I felt. And I still feel that today. Like I think the, the portion of people who, who don't get any help from it and die from it is still much smaller. Yeah. And so, um, and luckily, so, you know, I, 
I think it, I think it was kind of, I think I don't remember so much because it's like now I just can't, sometimes I look back and I'm like, how did that even happen to me? Like I'm so far from it. But at the time, what I do remember is just being like, oh, that's going to not, that's not going to be me. That must've been a terrible, terrible case of it, even though I was a terrible case. <laughs> like, yeah, you, know you I mean? were. I, I think I just didn't think of myself in that way. And that was probably good. I didn't either. It's so funny. And now I look back and I'm like, that was a terrible case of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's so funny, but you talk. I think it's a. I think it's a, denial is a way to stay alive too. Um, yeah. But you you say this, and I love this. Um, and you just touched on it that treating Lyme late stage is like climbing Mount Everest, except your hiking boots are flip flops and your flip flops are broken. <laughs> <laughs> right. That resonates and will resonate, I think, with anyone who has Lyme disease late stage because that is absolutely what it's like. And that was your story. You just and that's what you just said. You try things. They don't work for everybody. You you can't you can't possibly know. Um, so somebody suggested that you go to India to, to get stem cell treatment. And you talk about how you knew you knew you had to go. Um, describe the feeling of knowing. I knew that it was super risky. I knew it could be dangerous. I knew maybe it wouldn't work. I mean, I knew all of the sort of logical things around it, but I also just had this feeling that I had to go. And I really learned that like our intuition sometimes or all the time maybe doesn't make any sense. And this was one of those things where it's like, my doctor told me not to go. My doctor told me it could kill me. And It was experimental. The doctor in India who was doing the stem cells had never treated anybody with Lyme before. Like who would ever go to a doctor and get an experimental treatment where the doctor has never tried it? You know what I Mm -hmm. mean? Like, I mean, she had tried it, but not on anybody with Lyme, which is like a totally different beast. So, um, but I just knew I needed to go. And I knew that I needed to go so much that I was sort of, at peace with the idea that maybe I needed to go to find out it wouldn't work. Like I was at that point where it was like, I just feel like I can't have this thing on my list that could have worked that I didn't try. So even if I go and find out that it didn't work, I felt like that still needed to happen. Right. And you also, you just touched on this, but you talk about how it was, you know, life or death, not eat, pray, love, and that you'd rather die than live that life um so it's like it didn't matter it was like I felt that way with certain treatments at certain points where it was like it doesn't matter if this could kill me because um, I'm already like I'd rather die than live this life yeah and I felt like I was really I say this in the book like caught in the in between like in between like I wasn't like necessarily on my deathbed but I also wasn't in life so it was like I was just stuck in this really really bad place like I feel like I've known people really on their deathbed that then come to terms with I need to make peace with this is where I am but I felt like because I was still semi like trying to hang on to life I couldn't even make peace with like almost like I wasn't bad enough to surrender to where I was because I still had a taste of the life that I wanted. And so I feel like it's really interesting. It's really hard to not be healthy and not be so, 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 I mean, it's not great to be so, so, so sick. You can't do anything. But the times where I literally couldn't get out of bed, 
I felt more at peace than the times where I was struggling because I had just enough energy to try. Yes. So, you yes. know, the in-between is really hard because you don't really fit anywhere and you also can't relax into either way right. and come to terms with, you know, the times that I've been like, okay, I can't get out of bed. I literally cannot walk out of this bed. It was almost like a, you know, like when you try to make food rules and you're like, I'm not going to eat sugar. It's like so much easier just to not eat sugar than to tell yourself you can have a little bit here and there. And I almost felt like that. It's, I mean, I'm taking it down to like totally shallow terms. Here. You know what I mean? But, but basically that's how I felt when I was sick. Like there's, I can't get out of bed. There's nothing I can do about it. And I didn't beat myself up about it because I could literally, I had no choice, but this sort of in between, like I'm kind of halfway living, but I'm not really there. That felt that was harder for me. I think it's actually harder for most people. What you're describing mm-hmm. from the people that I've spoken to, and I once wrote a blog post called um, "Healthy Enough to Feel Like a Lunatic," because mm. that that was that was absolutely my experience. The little bit of health I would have, the more insane I would feel. Um, because it wasn't, I couldn't live in either world fully. Right. That's so, that's such a good point. And, um, and thank you for bringing that up. So you get to, you get to India and you, you're, you say there should be a sign. If you're not paying attention, you might lose a limb. And then, right. And then you see a dude get run over and, and get up like nothing happened. Right. (laughs) Which I just, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't get over. I've never been to India and I was just like that, that sounds so crazy. So tell us, tell us about your first couple of weeks in India, the food, the cold, the shower, the rat, the noise, all of these experiences you were having that were compounding. It was crazy. You know how it's hard enough to be sick in your own house with your own doctors and your own food and your own life. Like you have everything sort of like dialed in so that you're somewhat comfortable in your uncomfortable life. But going to India was like just being like catapulted out of any comfort you could possibly imagine into this crazy chaotic world. I mean, I didn't have hot water a lot of days in the hospital. I didn't have, and this seems like such a small thing, but it was such a big thing. Like the Wi-Fi didn't work so often. So I couldn't even like email or Skype with people back home the noise in India is, and I'm sure you got this from my book because I had to keep talking about it because it drove me nuts. The noise is unbelievable. Like the just decibels of like chaos you hear. Um, Cars honking, motorcycles, people yelling, talking, um, animals. It just was dogs barking all through. Like, I don't even under, I still to this day, I'm like, how does that even, how was it so crazy? It's just all these different noises, a very, very crowded city and all these different noises all the time at a very high level drove me insane. And then, you know, the language is different. Most people there spoke, there were some people who spoke English, but they um, spoke Hindi. So that I didn't understand. And I didn't like the food. I went there not liking Indian food and the hospital at first tried to serve me American food, but everything had curry in it. So even like the spaghetti had like mixed tomato and curry sauce. It was just so hard. And then, you know, I was used to eating, you know, non-GMO, organic. And like, I didn't, I was just, 
<laughs> didn't have access to any of my, you know, any food. You, I brought, I brought like trail mix and granola bars. Like I did bring a few things, but like that goes really fast if that's all you're eating and you just, you can't get stuff like that there. Um, so it was just, I was so thrown out of my comfort zone, just so far out of my comfort zone that I kind of fell apart. Um, right. And then the medical culture is the different there too. I mean, just like the protocols they used to do an IV are very different than home, but then the culture in terms of like, you know, you're, you're in, in Eastern sort of medical culture where they, they do really believe that your mind plays a big part in your body. And I wasn't really at the point where I believe that. And so that was really hard because I felt like, well, now they feel like I, this is my fault or now they feel like I can fix it. And why am I here if I can fix it? And it was just really a hard time for me. Right. And let's, so this all led you to this breaking point and to this realization that you needed to let go. Uh, So let's take a quick break for the weekly challenge. Welcome to our weekly challenge segment where we arm you with new tools each week to kick some self-care butt. As you explore all of these new options presented weekly, my hope is that you will come to collect a number of quick ways to take care of yourself inside and out. You will essentially have your very own and very handy self-care toolkit. Some of the challenges may not work for you and some will seem perfectly tailored to you. We are building up your defenses, inspiring your mind, body, and spirit toward total wellness. Keep in mind that the goal is always progress, not perfection. The only rule is that you are never allowed to beat yourself up. Keep me posted on your progress. Stay accountable. It helps. Okay, let's hit this week's challenge. Okay, Amy, what is the weekly challenge and why is it? How did we, how did you find this to be helpful? All right. So the weekly challenge is to practice letting go when you want to fight your current circumstance. And I learned that this is absolutely necessary for healing. When I was in India, I tried to control everything from my food to how the doctors and nurses did my IVs and it didn't work. And I realized at that point how much of my time and energy in my life and in in sort of my world of sickness was spent trying to control everything, even trying to do my supplements perfectly, trying to make sure I wasn't missing anything. And so I started to practice the the mantra of let go, let go, let go. And every time I found myself wasting my energy fighting against something ridiculous that just wasn't worth fighting against, I repeated, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go, until I was able to let go. And I still use it to this day. So my challenge for everybody is when you find yourself wasting your energy, just bleeding out all this extra energy because you're trying to make something go in a way that it doesn't, or you're over analyzing something that doesn't really matter in the big picture to use my mantra and see how that transforms your life. And I used it. Uh, Your book totally inspired me to just repeat it because I have some control issues. Um, (laughs) So I was like, oh, like, oh, like, oh, like, oh, like, oh, all week or whenever I read your book. And it really, um, it really helped me. And that's why I was like, can we make this the weekly challenge, maybe? Um, That's perfect. Yeah, I love, I love this, guys. And it made a really big difference uh, for me. So 
Uh, so I think that we we want to do that. And you brought up another really good point, you know, about being really obsessive about your supplements and making sure everything gets taken at the right time. I had a lot of intense feelings of like, this isn't going to work unless I do it perfectly. Um, like I was, right. I was so afraid of all these treatments I was trying. I, I was obsessive and I always thought that... Um, I was just missing like a little piece. Like I, I, I wasn't doing it at the right time of day or I wasn't sticking the needle in the right part of my body or like I just had, I, I was obsessive about doing it slightly imperfectly and it not working. Um, so you just mentioned that and you talk about it in the book about like eating chocolate cake again. Um, right, right. And just letting go in yeah. all the ways. Yeah. So you ate some chocolate cake, which by the way, like is very brave. I still, I still don't really eat much cake, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I saw you actually posted on Instagram the other day again, like a chocolate cake just might save your life or something. Yes. Like, yes. And guess what? It didn't do. I didn't die from it. I was fine. Right. <laughs> right. So will you, so there's this moment where you just decided like fuck it I'm eating this chocolate cake and the doctor sort of inspired you to get there and it made a really big difference in your energy levels to just say screw it yeah exactly because I had been I had had like excel spreadsheets of like symptoms and patterns and supplements and I remember even when I was back in California and I asked my doctor like how do we know if the supplements are working and he literally said to me we don't and I was like what and he was like, I mean, we really don't know. There's no like way to tell how much they're working. And that was like before I went to India. And that was sort of like a wake up call for me. And I was like, they don't even know how this is like helping or not helping. This is like and I'm like going crazy trying to stick to a schedule. So I had had sort of that initial like relaxation about it at that point. But then when I got to India, the doctor was like, every night you should have a little red wine and some chocolate. And I was like, this woman is going to kill me. Like, what <laughs> is she even talking about? And um, I did. I found some chocolate cake. I mean, it was easier for me to do in India because I couldn't, I mean, I couldn't, again, it's like when you don't have a choice, sometimes you let go. But like, I couldn't eat my food because it didn't exist in India. I couldn't eat all organic. I couldn't eat all, you know, I just couldn't eat the way that I ate at home. And so um, I found this chocolate cake in the corner store where you add water and and it like magically puffs up from the heat. <laughs> Something I never would eat at home because God only knows how it puffs up, right? I still don't want to know to this day how, what chemicals are involved in that. But I bought it and I bought a box of ma macaroni and cheese and I ate it and it felt so good and healing to just say, screw it. And I didn't die. And it was a really, really good lesson for me. You know, most people are working really hard on calming their fight, flight or freeze response and trying to relax enough into healing. But we don't realize that so much of what we're doing to heal is actually triggering our fight, flight or freeze response because we have all these crazy rules and the fear is that if we break them or don't do them perfectly, we won't get well. So I realized how much my stringent diet and rules for what would get me well actually were probably blocking me from getting well. Right. And I ate the, and I ate the cake and everything was fine. And I eat chocolate cake now and nothing bad happens. I've never relapsed. And, you know, I mean, I eat healthy. Don't, don't get me wrong. I don't eat cake every day, but just the letting go a little bit, like, I call it letting go of the death grip I had on my own life helped me to save it. And the chocolate cake was part of it. <laughs> mm, I love that. 
I love that. So things started to change for you slowly. You were in India for two full months, right? Um, yeah. And getting stem cell treatment. And um, it, it was it was a slow change. And most of it was really spiritual, a lot of it. Uh, we don't know, right? We'll never know. Like, was it the stem cells? Was it the, the mind-altering things that were happening to you? Um, right. The doctor really got in your head, and you mentioned this about being able to heal yourself, right? The Eastern uh, culture. And you just slightly mentioned that, you know, that was – that's a hard thing to swallow, right? Did I do this to myself? If I can heal myself, why am I here? So will you dig in a little more to how it made you feel to hear like you can do this yourself? Yeah, I mean, at first I was really, really resistant because when I was in the United States and seeing the specialists, they were really focused on like this bacteria is doing this and this virus is doing this and like nobody ever... I mean, I remember one time my doctor said to me, like, do you think your relationship, like the relationship I had with my ex, like, do you think that could be impacting your health at all? And I was like, no, of course not. It's a great relationship, like, which it wasn't. I know, you know what I mean? But I was super defensive. And I was sort of still in that state when the doctor in India kept saying, you can heal yourself. The stem cells will do their part, but you have to heal yourself. And I was really, really resistant. And it actually caused a strain in our relationship. Um, but eventually, you know, Eventually, I came around to it. I won't spoil the end because I'm sure you're going to go there. But eventually, I came around to it. I think I needed to hear it and maybe be defensive for a while until I was ready to to, to accept it or embrace it or see that, that being defensive just doesn't help you heal. So I always tell my clients, like, there are these things that we just, like, dig our feet into the ground about, like, we don't want to eat any sugar or we can't eat any gluten or blah, 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 blah. And, like, in the big picture, like, I'm not saying we should eat gluten all the time or if, obviously if you have a severe allergy you can't eat it but but aside from those things these things we dig our heels into the ground about are 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 not relaxing and healing and this was another thing that I was just defensive about but had I embraced the idea earlier and been a little bit more lighthearted about it I think that I would have I think that would have been a very good thing. Mm, lightheartedness. I <laughs> I remember somebody telling me, because I went to Bali. I spent two months in Indonesia doing an mm. intensive treatment to heal. So it was very... It had a bunch of similarities to what you, what you talk about in your book. And in, in Bali, somebody came up to me and said you know, you need three things to get well. You need to vibrate above the wellness. You need to laugh and you need to um, do what what brings you more of what brings you joy. But mm. she said to laugh. And I was like, I haven't laughed. <laughs> right. Who has time for laughing when you're this sick, right? Yeah, I hadn't laughed in like a year and a half. I really mm. mean that. And um, I thought, oh, lightheartedness like and I think that really turned things around for me um to to take things a little more lightly uh yeah to not have this I love that to have this death grip on my home life <laughs> yeah and I, I mean that was totally my feeling too and that's why even in my work now I help people you know heal and we laugh more than we cry on the phone because it really is important. Everybody is so heavy about this topic and it's a heavy topic, you know, emotional and physical 
well-being um, can be a really heavy, scary topic to deal with. But but the lighter we can be on ourselves, the lighter we can be about our lives, like that is what helps your nervous system relax and boost your immune system. That being intense about it doesn't doesn't have the same effect. And so I think it's a really important thing to bring into your overall approach. I totally agree. Um, so when did things start to turn around for you in India? So it was... Um, I feel like it was like right around my seventh week where things started to really turn around. And I just felt like I had this day where I woke up and it was after I'd had horrific, horrific food poisoning, which like I thought was going to be the nail in the coffin for me. You know, when you don't, when you, when you're sick already and then something else throws you off, your body just can't handle it. But I woke up from these days, like these basically three days of just being super sick from food poisoning and throwing up. And I suddenly felt better. Like not every symptom was gone, but I just felt like I turned a huge corner and that illness wasn't overtaking me anymore. And I think looking back that food poisoning or whatever it was, I think it was food poisoning, um, was sort of purging all of this stuff that I was holding on to. And it was like sort of an emotional release too. And I started to feel a lot better physically, but, but even more so, I just felt like I wasn't as consumed by illness. And that was a huge turning point with, at, in India. Mm, yeah, that's a, and the, those are great scenes that you describe there. So what after that happened, tell us what you learned about saying no. So you say it's easier to be sick than to say no when you want to say no. And this is something that comes up again and again and again. And I just I think it's important to touch on. Yeah. So for me, there were so many things. There were so many ways I think illness served me. Of course, I didn't want to be sick. Of course, I wanted to be out there in the healthy world. But I was also scared of the healthy world. I was afraid to say no to things and people that didn't fit for me. I was afraid to have all the pressure that I put on myself in the world. I was afraid of so many things. And for me, it was easier to be stuck in bed and escape those things than to be out in the world and have to stand up for myself and have to have to take care of myself. And of course, none of this was conscious, but I, I realized it later, like, oh, wow, that was kind of smart of my body to fall apart so that I didn't have to face all these things that were really scary for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's such a, it's such a good point. We talk about on a couple of podcasts, like how does illness, how is it working for you? What is it doing for you that you obviously need? And a lot of times what comes up is it's giving me an, an excuse to say no to things I've always wanted to say no to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then to take that, to be willing to take that into your healthy life, to be willing to have your own back, to be willing to really practice radical self-care, right? Um, um, a lot of times that for me anyway, that was a big turning point when I started to really just say to get healthy enough to say yes, but to still say no. Yes. Um, but you also learned in contrast a lot about saying yes. <laughs> yes, that's true too. <laughs> so what did you, what did, what was your experience with saying yes? So I sort of went on this like um, this path of saying yes to things that I had never said yes to before, um, which was, you know, being vulnerable, showing people that I was human, realizing that I wasn't perfect. And I sort of go through in the book all of these things that 
I was able to say yes to that that really helped me move forward. And I had spent so much of my life trying to be perfect and trying to do everything right and trying to hold all my emotions in so that I didn't ever seem like I was falling apart that I really the takeaway was that I had to say yes to being who I really was. And sometimes I wasn't perfect. <laughs> and I still, you know, I still am like, oh, but, but in a lot of ways, I feel like I am. But like, but perfectionism, as in like, I don't have to appear perfect or do everything perfectly or, you know, who I am is perfect, even when I'm imperfect. Right. Right. Do you still, pra- are you still pretty good about practicing these things in your life today? I'm pretty good with work. I think because I have, I've sort of come into a new career, so to speak, because now I write and, and I do a lot of teaching and presenting, like I have to be really careful in the arena of work, not to do it, not to be a perfectionist in all areas of my life. I'm perfect. Like I can let my house fall apart and be fine with it. Like those are, that's something that I would never do, or I can let my hair fall apart and be fine with it. Like those are things that I wouldn't have been able to do, but I still really have to be conscious about work. Like it's like, I'll have 5 million things that I have to do and then I'll make up three more that I should do. So I'm really, that work is like my, my week, my weakest link. Um, but I sometimes think like it, I have to work on that. I missed work for so long. Like I felt like I missed out on a career when so many of my friends were, were having a career. I was stuck in bed. And so I have to be really cognizant of like not trying to make up for lost time and realizing that, you know, whatever, whatever is meant to get done will. And so I practice it a lot in terms of work, but I sometimes still struggle with that specific aspect. Yeah. And you bring up another great point. It's so fun to work. I mean, I'm with you. I, that is such a perfectionist right. place for me, but it's so fun to work when you've <laughs> been yes. in bed first. When you haven't been, I know, I know. But it's, and, and I think we can't, I think, you know, once you get to a point where work becomes fun, then that's, it's okay to work a lot. Like I'm not saying working a lot will make you sick, but I think that it's easy for, um, though like old pressures to creep in or for you to start pushing for not you, but people to start pushing for reasons that aren't healthy. Like, I mean, I sometimes find myself creating new to-do lists and those aren't fun and they don't need to be done right now. Like I'm, do you know what I mean? Like I just sometimes feel like I have to keep myself in check. Like, am I doing this because I truly want to, or am I doing it because I feel like I have to, or because I feel like I'm not, sometimes I'll come up with like this belief I'm not helping enough people, but it's like, I'm helping as many people as I can by writing books and doing client sessions and just going out there in the world and teaching. But like those type of beliefs, like I'm not, it's basically, I'm not doing enough can be really, really hard on your body. Oh my God. Thank you for saying that. It's nine, it's nine 45 in the morning over here. And I needed to hear that at the start of the day. (laughs) Hopefully you can save your day. And last month I did something that I'd never done before, but I now make it a regular practice. So I get all these to-do lists going and some of them are like big pictures, sort of like, oh, I should create this new program because this would really help people or whatever. And last month I looked at my to-do list and it just kept growing. And some of the things weren't priority enough to do them. So they just stayed on there forever. And I deleted my whole to-do list. Mm. And I, I just like literally a rate, it's on my computer and I just deleted every single task and started a new one with the rule that if it didn't 
have to be done. If it wasn't absolutely necessary, it wasn't allowed on the list. And my life has been so much better because of that. And it's like, you know what? If I have time later to do that project, I'll do it. I'll remember it and I'll do it. But as of right now, it doesn't help to stare at a list all day of things you haven't done because that's really draining. Yes. (laughs) So maybe that will help somebody on this call to delete your list. I love that. I love that. So you you um, had this great recovery, and then you relapsed like a yeah. year like a year later. But in that relapse, you learned a whole new layer of surrender. Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So I came back from India, and I was like, "Oh, good. I'm mostly cured." I re I mean, I still had some issues, but I wasn't. You know, I was still testing for Lyme and I still had you know some things here and there but 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 compared to how I was it was a virtual it was a miracle basically the the transformation that I had and I think a lot of that transformation looking back was getting out of my life and my environment so then I came home and I was like okay great I could I'll just get back to my life now thank goodness that's over and I sort of went back to living my life in many of the same ways that I had before and I relapsed basically and I realized at that point when I was out of money and I was disgusted and I had now tried not only everything in the United States but like everything in the world I felt like that the only part that I never really addressed was me and I was the common denominator to every different illness or condition or problem I had ever had. And so I decided at that point to turn inward. Like, who else was I going to go to anyway? I was so out of options. And I started looking at our how beliefs and emotions affect our physical body. And it was like a whole new crazy world for me to realize that I was part of the problem all along. Like, I had this pattern of stuffing my emotions. I always had the belief that I wasn't good enough, that I had to do more, um, that I couldn't say no to people unless I was sick or I had a really good excuse. And all of these things I realized were having an impact. And that's kind of when the words of the doctor in India, you can heal yourself, came back to me. And I was like, well, there's nothing really left but those words. Let me try it because what else am I going to do? And that sent me in a whole new direction. And that's when I really, really healed permanently and completely and have never relapsed again. It's been like eight years, seven years. So I've been, you know, that was sort of my final piece. Now, you know, we go back to what worked and what didn't. And it's like, maybe it was like I say in the end of the book, like I needed all of it, but I also didn't need any of what I did. (laughs) But you don't know that. And so you go through and you're open to everything. But I would say to people listening, don't ignore the thing that's right in front of you, which is you. Like maybe you have a bacteria or a virus or a condition or whatever, but you are the common denominator to every single thing in your life. And if something isn't working, it's not your fault, but you're deaf. I guarantee you're part of it. And that was really what I came to. Right. Yeah. And it's so empowering. And, and I'm super glad you added it's not your fault because it's not. We're all human and some of us just happen to have uh, the, the manifestation of our humanness come out in illness. <laughs> Right. Um, Right. And, 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 you know, we get this crazy opportunity to dig really deep and expel stuff that most people don't have the opportunity to do in their lifetime. Right. Um, And, and, and who, I mean, I always say like, whoever stops their life to be like, I should deal with my emotions, like nobody, right until your emotions stop you. So it is, you know, for anybody struggling with, 
you know, physical condition or um, even anxiety or depression or just any anything that's not working, a toxic relationship, um, anything that's not working, like this thing that's not working is your opportunity to change it and to clear what's behind it so it doesn't have to keep sort of steering your life off the track that you want it to be on. Right. And so today, how do you practice some of these things? I mean, I'm sure that you still engage with things that probably aren't the best for you um, because you're human or that you still have moments where you don't know exactly what would be best for you or how to speak up for yourself or or you hold in emotions maybe sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you, how do you kind of work with all of your humanness and, 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 uh, you know, use these things in your life, but also not beat yourself up when you don't. Right. So I use energy therapy. That is, that was the way that I found my way back to health. And so I actually, it's funny, I wrote a book called How to Heal Yourself When No One Else Can. I wrote that before I wrote the memoir, this, the memoir, this is how I saved my life. So that book is so funny because it's still on my, you know, it's, it's on my coffee table and I use it all the time. Like I actually use my own book to clear and the techniques in my book to clear whatever's coming up. So I use emotional freedom technique. I use um, chakra tapping, which is sort of something I developed that uses the format of emotional freedom technique and tapping on acupressure, acupuncture points, but, but using but you know addressing the chakra system i have a technique called the sweep which releases or subconscious beliefs and sweeps them out of the mind that was something i created so along the way i created these techniques to help myself heal and i still use those very very regularly today I love that. I want to get, I have to get that book. You Um, have to get that book. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly. So I'll link to both of those. Um, Where else can people find you? So people can find me on my website, amybshare, S-C-H-E-R.com. They can also go to How I Save My Life, and it's no D on saved. It's a present tense save because I think we're always saving our lives. So howisavemylife.com. I also have tons of videos on YouTube. Um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, not so great with Twitter. I really need to get with the program, but I can pretty much be found anywhere. So I'd love to connect with, with, with anybody who's on a, on, on this path and, and just remind everybody that despite all the stories or what you might read on message boards, people do get well from emotional and physical experiences and illnesses and so I just really feel like there's so many things out there that are sending the opposite message right now and I just want to be that voice that reminds people it's not always easy but it's worth it and it happens right yes thank you thank you so much Amy that was just beautiful and I'm so grateful that you came on thank you this was so much fun okay bye guys bye Thank you so much for listening to Healing Out Loud. Please take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Find me at Jackie on Instagram, my favorite social media platform, and follow me at JackieShay.com if you want to stay in touch. You can also write to me through JackieShay.com if you're interested in working with me as your trusted wellness companion. I'm always happy to hear from you with any questions, comments, or concerns. You can also join the Healing Out Loud with Jackie Shea Facebook group. Have an amazing week, you kick-ass humans. I hope you're able to implement what you learned this week, and I can't wait to share more. Bye.